Section five of Roxana by Daniel Defoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. But to return to my story, he walked about the garden, which was indeed all in disorder and overrun with weeds because I had not been able to hire a gardener to do anything to it, no, not so much as to dig up ground enough to sow a few turnips and carrots for family use. After he had viewed it, he came in and sent Amy to fetch a poor man, a gardener, which used to help our manservant, and carried him into the garden, and ordered him to do several things in it, to put it into a little order, and this took him up near an hour. By this time I had dressed me as well as I could, for though I had good linen left still, yet I had but a poor headdress, and no knots, but old fragments, no necklace, no earrings, all those things were gone long ago for mere bread. However, I was tight and clean, and in better plight than he had seen me in a great while, and he looked extremely pleased to see me so for he said I looked so disconsolate and so afflicted before that it grieved him to see me, and he bade me pluck up a good heart, for he hoped to put me in a condition to live in the world, and be beholden to nobody. I told him that was impossible, for I must be beholden to him for it, for all the friends I had in the world would not or could not do so much for me as that he spoke of. Well, widow, says he, so he called me, and so indeed I was in the worst sense that desolate word could be used in. If you are beholden to me, you shall be beholden to nobody else. By this time dinner was ready, and Amy came in to lay the cloth, and indeed it was happy there was none to dine but he and I, for I had but six plates left in the house, and but two dishes, however, he knew how things were, and he bade me make no scruple about bringing out what I had. He hoped to see me in a better plight. He did not come, he said, to be entertained, but to entertain me and comfort and encourage me. Thus he went on speaking so cheerfully to me, and such cheerful things that it was a cordial to my very soul to hear him speak. Well, we went to dinner. I'm sure I had not eat a good meal hardly in a twelvemonth, at least not of such a joint of meat as the loin of veal was. I ate indeed very heartily, and so did he, and he made me drink three or four glasses of wine, so that, in short, my spirits were lifted up to a degree I had not been used to, and I was not only cheerful, but merry, and so he pressed me to be. I told him I had a great deal of reason to be merry, seeing he had been so kind to me, and had given me hopes of recovering me from the worst circumstances that ever woman of any sort of fortune was sunk into, that he could not but believe that what he had said to me was like life from the dead, that it was like recovering one sick from the brink of the grave, how I should ever make him a return any way suitable was what I had not yet had time to think of. I could only say that I should never forget it while I had life. 
and should always be ready to acknowledge it. He said that was all he desired of me. His reward would be the satisfaction of rescuing me from misery. That he found he was obliging one that knew what gratitude meant, that he would make it his business to make me completely easy first or last if it lay in his power, and in the meantime he bade me consider of anything that I thought he might do for me, for my advantage, and in order to make me perfectly easy. After we had talked thus, he bade me be cheerful. Come, says he, lay aside these melancholy things and let us be merry. Amy waited at the table, and she smiled and laughed, and was so merry she could hardly contain it, for the girl loved me to an excess, hardly to be described, and it was such an unexpected thing to hear any one talk to her mistress that the wench was besides herself almost. And as soon as dinner was over, Amy went upstairs and put on her best clothes, too, and came down dressed like a gentlewoman. We sat together talking of a thousand things, of what had been and what was to be all the rest of the day, and in the evening he took his leave of me with a thousand expressions of kindness and tenderness and true affection to me, but offered not the least of what my maid Amy had suggested. At his going away he took me in his arms, protected and honest kindness to me, said a thousand kind things to me, which I cannot now recollect, and after kissing me twenty times, or thereabouts, put a guinea into my hand, which he said was my present supply, and told me that he would see me again before it was out. Also he gave Amy half a crown. When he was gone, well, Amy, said I, are you convinced now that he is an honest as well as a true friend? and that there has been nothing, not the least appearance of anything, of what you imagined in his behaviour. Yes, says Amy, I am. But I admire at it he is such a friend as the world, sure, has not abundance of to show. I am sure, says I, he is such a friend as I have long wanted, and as I have as much need of as any creature in the world has, or ever had. And, in short, I was so overcome with the comfort of it that I sat down and cried for joy a good while, as I had formerly cried for sorrow. Amy and I went to bed that night, for Amy lay with me, pretty early, but lay chatting almost all night about it, and the girl was so transported that she got up two or three times in the night and danced about the room in her shift. In short, the girl was half distracted with the joy of it a testimony still of her violent affection for her mistress, on which no servant ever went beyond her. We heard no more of him for two days, but the third day he came again, and he told me with the same kindness that he had ordered me a supply of household goods for the furnishing the house, that in particular he had sent me back all the goods that he had seized for rent, which consisted indeed of the best of my former furniture. And now, says he, I'll tell you what I have had in my head for you, for your present supply, and that is, says he, that the house being well furnished, you shall let it out to lodgings, 
for the summer gentry, says he, by which you will easily get a good, comfortable subsistence, especially seeing you shall pay me no rent for two years, nor after, neither, unless you can afford it. This was the first view I had of living comfortably indeed, and it was a very probable way, I must confess, seeing we had very good conveniences, six rooms on a floor and three stories high, while he was laying down the scheme of my management, came a cart to the door with a load of goods and an upholster's man to put them up. They were chiefly the furniture of two rooms which he had carried away for his two years' rent, with two fine cabinets and some pear-glasses out of the parlour and several other valuable things. These were all restored to their places, and he told me he gave them me freely, as a satisfaction for the cruelty he had used me with before. The furniture of one room being finished and set up, he told me he would furnish one chamber for himself, and would come and be one of my lodgers, if I would give him leave. I told him he ought not to ask me leave, who had so much right to make himself welcome. So the house began to look in some tolerable figure, and clean. The garden also, in about a fortnight's work, began to look something less like a wilderness than it used to do and he ordered me to put up a bill for letting rooms, reserving one for himself to come to as he saw occasion. When all was done to his mind, as to placing the goods he seemed very well pleased, and we dined together again of his own providing, and the upholster's man gone, after dinner he took me by the hand. "'Come now, madam,' says he, "'you must show me your house.' for he had a mind to see everything over again. No, sir, said I, but I'll go show you your house, if you please. So he went up through all the rooms, and in the room which was appointed for himself, Amy was doing something. Well, Amy, says he, I intend to lie with you to-morrow night. To-night, if you please, sir, says Amy, very innocently, your room is quite ready. Well, Amy, says he, I am glad you are so willing. No, says Amy, I mean your chamber is ready to-night, and away she ran out of the room, ashamed enough, for the girl meant no harm, whatever she had said to me in private. However, he said no more then, but when Amy was gone, he walked about the room and looked at everything, and taking me by the hand, he kissed me, and spoke a great many kind, affectionate things to me indeed as of his measures for my advantage, and what he would do to raise me again in the world, told me that my afflictions, and the conduct I had shown in bearing them to such an extremity, had so engaged him to me that he valued me infinitely above all the women in the world, that though he was under such engagements that he could not marry me, his wife and he had been parted for some reasons which make too long a story to intermix with mine, yet that he would be everything else that a woman could ask in a husband. And with that he kissed me again, and took me in his arms, but offered not the least uncivil action to me, and told me he hoped I would not deny him all the favours he should ask, because he resolved to ask nothing of me, but what it was fit for a woman of virtue and modesty, for such he knew me to be, to yield. I confess the terrible pressure of my former misery, the memory of which lay heavy upon my mind, 
and the surprising kindness for which he had delivered me, and with all the expectations of what he might still do for me were powerful things, and made me have scarce the power to deny him anything he would ask. However, I told him thus with an air of tenderness too, that he had done so much for me that I thought I ought to deny him nothing. Only I hoped and depended upon him that he would not take the advantage of the infinite obligations I was under to him to desire anything of me, the yielding to which would lay me lower in his esteem than I desired to be. But as I took him to be a man of honour, so I knew he could not like me the better for doing anything that was below a woman of honesty and good manners to do. He told me that he had done all this for me, without so much as telling me what kindness or real affection he had for me, that I might not be under any necessity of yielding to him anything for want of bread, and he would no more oppress my gratitude now than he would my necessity before, nor ask anything, supposing he would stop his favours or withdraw his kindness if he was denied. It was true, he said, he might tell me more freely his mind now than before, seeing I had let him see that I accepted his assistance, and saw that he was sincere in his design for serving me, that he had gone thus far to shew me that he was kind to me, but that now he would tell me that he loved me, and yet would demonstrate that his love was both honourable and that what he should desire was what he might honestly ask, and I might honestly grant. I answered that within those two limitations I was sure I ought to deny him nothing, and I should think myself not ungrateful only, but very unjust, if I should say he said no more. But I observed he kissed me more, and he took me in his arms in a kind of familiar way, more than usual and which once or twice put me in mind of my maid Amy's words, and yet I must acknowledge I was so overcome with his goodness to me in those many kind things he had done, that I not only was easy at what he did, and made no resistance, but was inclined to do the like, whatever he offered to do. But he went no further than what I have said, nor did he offer so much as to sit down on the bedside with me, but took his leave, said he loved me tenderly, and would convince me of it by such demonstrations as should be to my satisfaction. I told him I had a great deal of reason to believe him, that he was full master of the whole house, and of me, as far as was within the bounds we had spoken of, which I believed he would not break and asked him if he would not lodge there that night. He said he could not well stay that night, business requiring him in London, but added, smiling, that he would come the next day, and take a night's lodging with me. I pressed him to stay that night, and told him I should be glad of a friend so valuable should be under the same roof with me, and indeed I began at that time not only to be much obliged to him, but to love him too and that in a manner that I had not been acquainted with myself. Oh, let no woman slight 
the temptation that being generously delivered from trouble is to any spirit furnished with gratitude and just principles. This gentleman had freely and voluntarily delivered me from misery, from poverty and rags. He had made me what I was, and put me into a way to be even more than I ever was, namely, to live happy and pleased, and on his bounty I depended. What could I say to this gentleman when he pressed me to yield to him, and argued the lawfulness of it? But of that in its place, I pressed him again to stay that night, and told him it was the first completely happy night that I had ever had in the house in my life. I should be very sorry to have it be without his company. He was the cause and foundation of it all, that he, we would be innocently merry, that it could never be without him, and in short I courted him so, that he said he could not deny me. But he would take his horse, and go to London, do the business he had to do, which it seems was to pay a foreign bill that was due that night would else be protested, and that he would come back in three hours at farthest, and sup with me, but bade me get nothing there, for since I was resolved to be merry, which was what he desired above all things, he would send me something from London, and we will make it a wedding supper, my dear, says he, and with that word took me in his arms, and kissed me so vehemently that I made no question but he intended to do everything else that Amy had talked of. He started a little at the word, wedding. What do you mean to call it by such a name, says I, adding, we will have a supper, and t'other is impossible, as well on your side as mine. He laughed, well, says he, you shall call it what you will. But it may be the same thing, for I shall satisfy you. It is not so impossible as you make it. I don't understand you, said I. Have not I a husband, and you a wife? Well, well, says he, we will talk of that after supper. So he rose up, gave me another kiss, and took his horse for London. This kind of discourse had fired my blood, I confess, and I knew not what to think of it. It was plain now that he intended to lie with me, but how he could reconcile it to a legal thing like a marriage, that I could not imagine. We had both of us used Amy with so much intimacy and trusted her with everything, having such unexampled instances of her fidelity, that he made no scruple to kiss me and say all these things to me before her, nor had he cared one farthing if I would have let him lay with me to have had Amy there too all night when he was gone. Well, Amy, says I, what will all this come to now? I am all in a sweat at him. Come to, madam, says Amy, I see what it will come to. I must put you to bed to-night together. Why, you would not be so impudent, you jade, you, says I, would you? Yes, I would, says she, with all my heart, and think you both as honest as ever you were in your lives. What ails the slut to talk so, said I? Honest? How can it be honest? Why, I tell you, madam, says Amy. I sounded it as soon as I heard him speak, and it is very true, too. He calls you widow, and such indeed you are. 
for as my master has left you so many years he is dead to be sure at least he is dead to you he is no husband you are and ought to be free to marry who you will and his wife being gone from him and refuses to lie with him then he is a single man again as much as ever and though you cannot bring the laws of the land to join you together yet one refusing to do the office of a wife and the other of a husband you may certainly take one another fairly nay amy says i if i could take him fairly you may be sure i'd take him above all the men in the world it turned the very heart within me when i heard him say he loved me how could it do otherwise when you know what condition i was in before despised and trampled on by all the world i could have took him in my arms and kissed him as freely as he did me if it had not been for shame i and all the rest too says amy at the first word i don't see how you can think of denying him anything has he not brought you out of the devil's clutches brought you out of the blackest misery that ever poor lady was reduced to can a woman deny such a man anything nay i don't know what to do amy says i i hope he won't desire anything of that kind to me i hope he won't attempt it if he does i know not what to say to him not ask you says amy depend upon it he will ask you and you will grant it too i'm sure my mistress is no fool come pray madam let me go ere you a clean shift don't let him find you in foul linen the wedding night but I, that i know you to be a very honest girl amy says i you would make me abhor you why you argue for the devil as if you are one of his privy counsellors it's no matter for that madam i say nothing but what i think you own you love this gentleman and he has given you sufficient testimony of his affection to you your conditions are alike unhappy and he is of opinion that he may take another woman his first wife having broke her honour and living from him and that though the laws of the land will not allow him to marry formally yet that he may take another woman into his arms provided he keeps true to the other woman as a wife nay he says it is usual to do so and allowed by the custom of the place in several countries abroad and i must own i am of the same mind else tis in the power of a whore that after she has jilted and abandoned her husband to confine him from the pleasure as well as the convenience of a woman all days of his life which would be very unreasonable and as times go not tolerable to all people and the like on your side madame had i now had my senses about me and had my reason not been overcome by the powerful attraction of so kind so beneficent a friend had i consulted conscience and virtue i should have repelled this amy however faithful and honest to me in other things as a viper an engine of the devil 
I ought to have remembered that neither he or I, either by the laws of God or man, could come together upon any other terms than that of notorious adultery. The ignorant jade's argument that he had brought me out of the hands of the devil, by which she meant the devil of poverty and distress, should have been a powerful motive to me not to plunge myself into the jaws of hell and into the power of the real devil in recompense for that deliverance i should have looked upon all the good this man had done for me to have been the particular work of the goodness of heaven and that goodness should have moved me to a return of duty and humble obedience i should have received the mercy thankfully and applied it soberly to the praise and honour of my maker whereas by this wicked course all the bounty and kindness of this gentleman became a snare to me was a mere bait to the devil's hook i received his kindness at the dear expense of body and soul mortgaging faith religion conscience and modesty for as i may call it a morsel of bread or if you will ruined my soul from a principle of gratitude and gave myself up to the devil to show myself grateful to my benefactor i must do the gentleman that justice as to say i verily believe that he did nothing but what he thought was lawful and i must do that justice upon myself as to say i did what my own conscience convinced me at the very time i did it was horribly unlawful scandalous and abominable but poverty was my snare dreadful poverty the misery i had been in was great such as would make the heart tremble at the apprehensions of its return and i might appeal to any that he has had any experience of the world whether one so entirely destitute as i was of all manner of all helps or friends either to support me or to assist me to support myself could withstand the proposal not that i plead this as a justification for my conduct but that it may move the pity even of those that abhor the crime besides this i was young handsome and with all the mortifications i had met with was vain and that not a little, and that it was a new thing, so it was a pleasant thing to be courted, caressed, embraced, and high professions of affection made to me by a man so agreeable, and so able to do me good. Add to this, that if I had ventured to disoblige this gentleman, I had no friend in the world to have recourse to, I had no prospect, no, not of a bit of bread. I had nothing before me but to fall back into the same misery that I had been in before. Amy had but too much rhetoric in this cause. She represented all those things in their proper colours. She argued them all with her utmost skill, and at last the merry jade, when she came to dress me. Ye, madam, said she, if you won't consent, tell him you'll do as Rachel did to Jacob she could have no children put her maid to bed to him 
tell him you cannot comply with him, but there's Amy. He may ask her the question. She has promised me she won't deny you. What did you have me say so, Amy? said I. No, madam, but I would really have you do so. Besides, you are undone if you do not. And if my doing it would save you from being undone, as I said before, he shall, if you will, if he asks me, I, I won't deny him, not I. Hang me if I will, says Amy. Well, I know not what you do, says I to Amy. Do, says Amy. Your choice is fair and plain. Here you may have a handsome, charming gentleman, be rich, live pleasantly, and in plenty, or refuse him, and want a dinner, go in rags, live in tears, in short, beg and starve. You know this is the case, madame, says Amy. I wonder how you can say you know not what to do. Well, Amy, says I, the case is as you say, and I think verily I must yield to him. But then said I, moved by conscience, don't talk any more of your cant, if it's being lawful that I ought to marry again, and that he ought to marry again, and such stuff as that is all nonsense, says I. Amy, there's nothing in it. Let me hear no more of that, for if I yield it is to in vain to mince the matter. I am a whore, Amy, neither better nor worse, I assure you. I don't think so, madam. By no means, says Amy. I wonder how you can talk so. And she ran on with her argument of the unreasonableness that a woman should be obliged to live single, or a man to live single in such cases as before. Well, Amy, said I, come, let us dispute no more, for the longer I enter into that part, the greater my scruples will be. But if I let it alone, the necessity of my present circumstances is such that I believe I shall yield to him if he should importune me much about it, but I should be glad he would not do it at all, but leave me as I am. As to that, madam, you may depend, says Amy. He expects to have you for his bedfellow to-night. I saw it plainly in his management all day, and at last he told you so, too, as plain, I think, as he could. Well, well, Amy, said I, I don't know what to say. If he will, he must. I don't know how to resist such a man that has done so much for me. I don't know how you should, says Amy. Thus Amy and I canvassed the business between us. The jade prompted the crime, which I had but too much inclination to commit. That is to say, not as a crime, for I had nothing of the vice in my constitution. My spirits were far from being high, my blood had no fire in it to kindle the flame of desire. The kindness and good humour of the man, and the dread of my own circumstances concurred to bring me to the point, and I even resolved before he asked to give up my virtue to him, whenever he should put it to the question. In this I was double offender, whatever he was, for I was resolved to commit the crime, knowing and owning it to be a crime. He, if it was true, as he said, was fully persuaded it was lawful, and in that persuasion he took the measures, and used all the circumlocutions which I am going to speak of. End of section 5